0: This program is made possible by BibleWayMedia.org overseen by the Uloga Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd.
1: Welcome to the program today. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for being with us today as we continue our studies in the book of Job. We're going to be looking today at Bildad's accusations that are made against Job in Job chapter eight. Job has now defended himself against Eliphaz or what Eliphaz had accused him of being, a wicked and foolish man. He must be thinking, or Job must be thinking, with friends like these, who needs enemies? You know, sometimes we need to think before we speak whenever tragic circumstances come upon a friend. But it just seems like we just have to put in our two cents, and we end up being more of a burden than a comfort, which is what Eliphaz was. Well, Bildad is Job's next friend to speak, and he charges ahead with the sensitivity and tact as a bull in a china closet. Well, in verses 1 through 7 of Job chapter 8, Bildad thinks Job needs to repent. The first thing that Bildad tells Job is, you're just full of hot air, Job 8, 1 and 2. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, how long wilt thou speak these things? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? So again, he asks Job, how long will you speak these things? In other words, how long are you going to keep murmuring and complaining? Bildad tells Job that his words are like a storm or a tempest that sweeps over all barriers and uh, disregards all restraint. Job, you're not restraining yourself at all. Why do you keep murmuring and complaining? And Bildad is infuriated at what he thinks is Job's total contempt for God's justice. Job chapter eight, verse three. Doth God pervert judgment? or doth the Almighty pervert justice? In other words, Bill asked these two rhetorical questions. Does God pervert judgment? No. God is just, everything God does is just. Does God pervert justice? No. God does not afflict people unjustly. You are suffering, therefore, you are unjust. You're suffering because you deserve to suffer. And then in verse 4, Bildad suggests that Job's children died because they sinned. Job 8, 4. If thy children have sinned against him and he have cast them away for their transgression, they just can't stop accusing Job and his family of sin. Well, Bildad brings up Job's children to support his argument that God brings his wrath upon the sinner. So here's kind of his argument. God is just. God does not afflict people unjustly. Your children died. You are suffering. Therefore, the whole family is evil. You're evil, your children are evil, they're taking after you. Well, Dave Miller in the 16th Spiritual Sword Lectures on page 84 stated this, and I quote, no doubt times arise when we need to speak forthrightly and not beat around the bush, but Bildad's remark was a low blow, a callous insensitive. Verbal jab that must have cut Job's heart deeply. Unquote. Your whole family is wicked. That's why your children died. That's why you are suffering. Well, Bildad contrast what happened to Job's children to Job having the opportunity to escape a similar end. Job chapter 8 verse 5 If thou wouldest seek unto God betimes and make thy supplication to the Almighty so Bildad is telling Job seek God now and God will restore you to his favor don't be like your children sinners God destroyed them don't be like them well, Adam Clark in his commentary on Esau made this comment concerning that verse, and I quote, "Though Job has so sev- or, excuse me, though God has so severely afflicted thee and removed thy children by a terrible judgment, yet if thou wilt now humble thyself before him and implore His mercy, thou shalt be saved. He cut them off in their sins but he spares thee, and this is a proof that he waits to be gracious to thee." Unquote. So Job, you're gonna face the same thing. You're gonna face death just like your children if you do not repent and turn to God. In Job chapter eight, verse six, Bildad accuses Job of being guilty of sin. Job eight, six. If thou wert pure and upright, surely he would, he would awake for thee, and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. So he's telling Job, you know, if you were really pure, as you are saying, if you were upright, then none of this would have happened to you. But Job, there's no doubt that you're guilty. You know, if you were holy, none of these calamities would have happened. But if you will just repent, God will restore you to prosperity. Your losses would seem small compared to the blessings that God would give you if you will just humble yourself, admit your sin, repent, and God will take care of you. Albert Barnes, in his commentary on Esau, made this comment, and I quote, Thy children have been wicked and are now cut off. Thou thyself hast been a wicked man, and in consequence art afflicted. If now thou wouldest become pure and seek unto God, then God would make thy habitation prosperous, unquote. So again, Bildad is convinced that Job is wicked. Job's children were wicked, that's why they were killed. Well, Bildad tells Job that though his family is now small, it would greatly increase if Job would repent. Verse seven of chapter eight. Verse seven, though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end would greatly increase. You see of Job's family only Job and his wife were left. Satan didn't didn't kill her, did he? Because she had something in mind that Satan wanted. You know, back there in Job chapter two. There's his wife said unto him in verse nine, Dost thou still retain thine integrity, curse God and die. So Satan had a use there for for Bildad, Satan had a use for him there for his wife, for Job's wife, and Bildad is referring to the smallness of his family here. Well, if you will just turn to God, you'll be greatly blessed. Well then, Bildad tells Job to look back at the ancients of history. Job, and this is verses 8 through 10, just look back and see what history tells us. Well, first of all, in verse 8, Bildad tries to prove his point by appealing to ancestral history. Job eight. 8. For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers, In other words, look and see what happened. Look to see what they did. You know, this is typical of people today just as it was people in the past. Every so-called authority imaginable is brought up to prove someone's point. Well, you know, old Uncle Joe used to say this, Grandpa Bob said that, and Grandma Helen would say this, and well, Too bad God and His Word are not brought up as the true authority. Dave Miller stated in class that I took there that Bildad would have made a good talk show host. (laughs) That's true, too. Albert Barnes, in his commentary on Esword, stated this, and I quote, The sentiment which Bildad proposes to confirm by this appeal is, that though the wicked should for a time flourish, yet they would be cut off, and that the righteous, though they may be for a time afflicted, if they seek God, they will ultimately prosper. Unquote. So, Job, look back and see what has happened to people. See what we hear from our ancestors. Well, in verse 9, Bildad states that our lives are short. So we need to look at what those who have gone before us have observed and have searched out and conclusions that they made. Job 8, verse 9. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, because our days upon the earth are a shadow. Well, Adam Clark in his commentary, and he's stated this, and I'll quote him, It is evident that Bildad refers to those times in which human life was protracted to a much longer date than that in which Job lived, when men from the long period of eight or nine hundred years had the opportunity of making many observations and treasuring up a vast fund of knowledge and experience, unquote. Well, We can learn from history, but we need to learn what is right from history and not learn what we want history to say. Now you think about those long ages that they lived back then, 8 or 900 years. What brought all that to an end? The flood. Yeah, Job, let's go back and look at those long extended life periods and learn from them, those that were so wicked that God destroyed the earth. Not very good people to go back and look at. Well, Bildad tells Job to let the ancients teach him why he is in the shape he's in. Job chapter 8, verse 10. Shall not they teach thee? And tell thee and utter words out of their heart. He tells Job, pay attention to what they said, what they learned. John Gill, in his commentary on Esau, made this statement, and I quote Job is directed to inquire of and to prepare for a search into their records and traditions. From whom he might reasonably expect to be taught and hold things that would be very instructive and useful to him in his present circumstances. So go back, Job. We need to listen to those, those ancients, our ancestors. Well, Bildad then tells Job to look at nature and compare that to his own circumstances. Job chapter eight verses eleven through nineteen. First of all, Job, uh, excuse me, Bildad uses nature to ask two rhetorical questions in Job eight eleven. Can the rush grow up without mire? Can the flag grow without water? What well, he's just basically saying here that plants cannot thrive without water. You know that, Job. You know that they have to have water to live. And then in verse 12, Bildad says, even if the grass that needs less water is green, that these plants will wilt before the grass does. In verse 12, whilst it is yet in his greenness and not cut down, it withereth before any other herb. So right there, Bildad is setting up his conclusion about why Job is suffering so much. You know, the rush has to have the mire, the muddy to live in, muddy area. The flag has to have water. And now grass, it doesn't need as much when it's not cut down, it's green but these others wither before any other herb. Now, here's, here's Bildad's conclusion in verse 13. Bildad tells Job he's like a green plant that has withered, and he tells him why in his opinion. Job 8:13. 13. So are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. So Bildad is telling Job that his previous prosperity was momentary because of two reasons. Number one, Job, you've forgotten God. Number two, Job, you're a hypocrite. You've forgotten God. You're a hypocrite. You're like that green plant that lacks water. You have withered away. So Bildad says that Job's heart is not right with God, and all hope that Job has will disappear when he dies. So Job, get your life right. Well, Bildad uses another example from nature, He compares Job's prosperity to like someone who is leaning on a spider's web, Job 8.14, whose hope shall be cut off and whose trust shall be a spider's web. Well, Bildab is telling Job that Job was leaning on his prosperity which is like a spider's web when it is leaned on it just collapses bildad says that job is a hypocrite and he has no hope if he does not repent well then bildad says the hope of the hypocrite which job think or excuse me bildad thinks job is is the house the hypocrite built for himself. That's Job 8.15. Job 8.15. He shall lean upon his house, but it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, but it shall not endure. In other words, Job, you built up this hope, but it's all on yourself. It's not on God. You forgot God. You're a hypocrite. Again, Dave Miller said in class notes, or in the uh, spiritual sword lectures, excuse me, it was as as if Job had taken great care like the spider that spins its web with precision to construct his prosperous lifestyle around himself, expecting it to sustain and support him and provide him with security and stability." stability. Yet like the web, it collapsed as soon as he relied upon it. His trust in himself and his prosperity was as fragile and flimsy as a spider's silk strand that one might frantically grasp to keep from falling. Unquote. So that's what Bildad is telling Job. You leaned upon yourself, you leaned on your prosperity and you fell you tried to hold on to it but you couldn't god took it away well now bildad uses a vine type of plant to illustrate his accusations and this is job 8:16 8, through 18 job 8:16 8, through 18 he is green before the sun and his branch shooteth forth in his garden. His roots are wrapped about the heap and seeth the place of stones. If he destroy him from his place, then it shall deny him, saying, I have not seen thee. Well, what Bildad is saying is that Job was once as prosperous as a green vine, spreading its roots among the stones of a garden. But now, it's gone. Just as the vine that is uprooted and seen no more. So, Bildad's point is, he's warning Job that if he does not get right with God, God is going to destroy you and deny ever knowing him. God is going to deny knowing you if you do not repent. And then in verse 19, Bill Nadd tells Job, "Others will just take your place." Verse nineteen. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth shall others grow. So, Bill Nadd, you were, you know, others are going to take your place. You know, if his that he mentions here in the verse there in verse 19. Behold, this is the joy of his way. Well, if the word his there refers to God, then Bildad is saying this is how God deals with you. And if his there refers to the wicked man, Bildad is telling Job, then this is what comes to you. But either way, Bildad is saying, Job, Hypocrites are removed to make way for someone who is sincere. That's what he's telling Job. Now, in verses 20 to 22, Bildad tells Job to respond to God. Job 8:20 20 to 22. Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. Till he fill thy mouth with laughing, and thy lips with rejoicing. They that hate thee shall be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. So he's telling Job there, verse 20, and I want to just go back and we're going to focus on verse 20. Behold God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evil doers. Bildad tells Job, God will not forsake a man who has integrity. The literal translation of the Bible translates verse 20 this way. Behold, God will not cast away the innocent, and he will not help the evildoers. The words cast away come from the Hebrew word ma'as, which means to reject, despise, refuse. In other words, God will not reject the innocent. He will not despise the innocent. He will not refuse the innocent or the perfect man. The word perfect there, and these are Brown, Driver, Briggs definitions. Uh, Tom means complete, morally innocent, having integrity. So Bildad is telling Job that God will not forsake you if you were innocent. But since you are being punished, you are evil and wicked. Job, you are not a man of integrity that you say you are because you are evil. Well, Bill, that explains that if Job would relent, repent, confess his sin, everything will be great. And that was verse 21 till he fill thy mouth with laughing and thy lips with rejoicing. Job, if you just repent, all of your misery would be relieved and you'd be able to laugh and rejoice again. Look how wonderful your life could be if you will just get right with God. And then Bildad gives another example of what would happen if Job would just repent. Verse 22. They that hate thee shall be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. So Bildad exclaims here that Job's enemies would be ashamed of their actions if he would acknowledge his sin to God. Wicked men would not survive, and Job would thrive. Albert Barnes, in his commentary on Esau, said, quote, when they see you returning to prosperity and the evidences of the divine favor, then, or they will then be ashamed that they regarded you as a hypocrite and that they reproached you in your trials, uh, Bildad didn't pull any punches here in Job's rebuke that he gave him. Bildad jumped to the conclusions that Eliphaz did and Zophar will. They're finding fault with Job without examining all the facts. Now, let's go to Job chapter nine and look at Job's response here. Bildad had just accused Job of being a great sinner. He was incensed with Job's questioning of God's justice as Bildad saw it. Job answers Bildad in chapter nine, And then Job speaks to God in chapter 10. The imagery of chapter 9 is mainly that of a court of law. So let's look at Job's answer to Bildad here in Job chapter 9. And we'll take this as far as we can, time allotting. First of all, Job wonders how man can obtain justice from God in Job 9, 1 through 3. Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. So Job agrees with Bildad that God is just and holy. And then Job wonders how can sinful mankind be regarded as righteous by such a holy and pure being as God? Well, we understand now how that is accomplished, and it's accomplished only through Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, look at verses 6 through 10. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. It says, Therefore, when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended, commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So right there, we understand now that we can be justified by the blood of Christ through our obedience to the commands that God has given to us in the New Testament. Now look again at Job nine three. As Job is saying there, if he, that being man, will contend with him, that being God, then he, man, cannot answer him, God, one of a thousand. What's he saying? Well, one of a thousand there, from what I have read, refers to You cannot answer to God of one of a thousand offenses against God. And man cannot justify himself of even that one offense. Again, we know now that it takes the blood of Christ to justify us. Well, Job now describes the great actions that God has done and can do in Job chapter 9, verses 4 through 10. In Job chapter 9 verse 4, Job says, God is wise and mighty. Job 9 4, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? Job is saying no one can contend with God because he searches out and sees all things and those that rebel against God will be destroyed. In verses 5 and 6, Job says that God has great power. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9. Which removeth the mountains, and they know not. Which overturneth them in his anger. Which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble. You know, Adam Clark says, and I quote, This seems to refer to earthquakes, by those strong convulsions, mountains, valleys, hills, and even whole islands are removed in an instant, unquote. You know, there is no warning, and the mountain that seems as firm as the earth is suddenly swallowed up and disappears. Now, we go back to First Kings chapter 19, verse 11. Whenever Elijah has run for his life, and he's down there in the mountain of the Lord. And we read this in chapter 19, verse 11 of First Kings. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. But I wanted to read this verse because we see the great power of God, the strong wind that rent the mountains and broke rocks, the earthquake, the power of God. And then in Job chapter 9, verse 7, Job says, God controls the light of the sun and the stars, Job 9, 7 which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars. You know, God can hide the light of the sun both naturally and supernaturally. God can hide the sun naturally through, through cloud cover. He can do it through eclipses. And God has hidden the light of the sun supernaturally. Go back to Exodus chapter 10. Verses 21 to 23. Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 23. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward the heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. So God hid the light of the sun supernaturally there, but he also does it naturally. God can hide the light of the stars in the same ways. There was no starlight in the plague of darkness in Egypt. Also, God can cover that with clouds. So God can do that. And in verse 4, excuse me, verse 8 of Job chapter 9, God alone stretches out the heavens and walks on the waves of the sea. Job 9, 8, which alone spreadeth out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. God spreads out the heavens as a curtain. In Isaiah chapter 40, look at verse 22. Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to look at verse 22. It says, Of God, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, And spreadeth them out as tents to dwell in. So the God who has spread out the heavens like a curtain will someday bring all of that to an end. He's going to fold it up like that curtain as well whenever the second coming of Christ comes. So we need to be ready for that. But anyway, that's a totally different lesson. But we're looking at God's power. And you know, though Job did not see it much earlier than Jesus, but Jesus walked on the great waves in the storm of the Sea of Galilee also. You go to Matthew chapter 14, verses 24 and 25. Matthew chapter 14, (coughs) verses 24 and 25. It says there, But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. So just a couple of examples of what Job was mentioning about God. In Job 9.9, Job says that God sets the constellations in their place. Job 9.9 which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Arcturus is the constellation we call the Great Bear or Ursa Major in the northern sky. Orion is the constellation the ancients called the Giant and is in the southern sky. Pleiades is the constellation in the eastern sky. Now, the chambers of the south from what I read, refers to stars seen in the southern hemisphere that are not visible in the northern hemisphere. So God has set all these in their place. Now, Job says that God does things that cannot be analyzed. Job 9 verse 10. Which doeth great things past finding out. (coughs) Excuse me. Yea, and wonders without number. You know, this one verse describes three of God's attributes. His omniscience, he is everywhere. His omnipotence, his great power. And his his omniscience omniscience is his all-knowing. His omnipotence is all power. His omnipresence, he is everywhere. Get that thing straightened out there. Well, Job agrees that God is powerful, just, and no one can stand up to him. But then Job wonders, what does that have to do with me? In Job chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth on also, but I perceive him not. Behold, he taketh away. Who can hinder him? Who will say unto him, What doest thou? In other words, we can see the evidence of God's existence and know that he's there, but we can't see God himself. Albert Barnes, concerning this verse, uh, puts it this way in his commentary, and I quote, the heavens are seen to move in silent grandeur. The northern constellation rolls around the pole. The others move on as a marshaled army. They go in silent and solemn order, and God must be there. But, says Job, I cannot sing. I can feel that he must be there, and I look out on the heavens to sing. But my eyes fail, and I cannot behold him, unquote. Well, Job refers to that which God has taken away, and no one has the right to question God. You you go back to Job chapter 1, verse 21. There Job said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord had taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, Job still thinks that God is the one behind all of his problems, but we know really who took away what Job had and that was Satan. But Job continues to claim that it's futile to argue with God. Here in Job 9:13 and 14. Don't it's futile. Job 9:13 and 14. If God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop under him. How much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? So he's saying God will not be appeased with anything that man can say for himself for his own justification. Even those who are allied together through their pride will bow down before God. So Job then asked, how can he contend with God? Because Job says of himself, he is so feeble. Well, Albert Barnes again, quoting him, said this, I I who am so feeble, how can I contend with him? If the most mighty objects in the universe are under his control, if the constellations are directed by him, if the earth is shaken and mountains moved from their places by his power, and if the men of most exalted rank are prostrated by him, how can I presume to contend with God?" Well, Job feels that if he could argue his case before God, it would be useless, and that's Job nine fifteen to eighteen. Well, in Job fifteen uh, nine fifteen, Job feels the only thing left for him to do is to trust God and pray Job nine fifteen Whom though I were righteous, yet would I not answer, but I would make supplication to my judge. Albert Barnes there said that Job is saying this, and I quote, That is, if I felt the utmost confidence that I was righteous, yet if God judged otherwise and regarded me as a sinner, I would not reply reply to him, but would make supplication to him as a sinner, unquote. In verse 16, Job said that even if God answered him, Job did not think God would answer his complaint. Verse 16, If I had called and he had answered me, yet would I not believe that he had hearkened to my voice. Uh, God has not answered to relieve me yet. So is he going to answer my complaint? Well, Job thinks that God is overwhelming him with pain for no reason. Verse 17, for he breaketh me with a tempest and multiplieth my wounds without cause. Job feels that God's storm of wrath is upon him and Job feels that his suffering is not equal with his faults. <coughs> In verse 18, Job is filled with bitterness Verse 18, he will not suffer me to take my breath, but filleth me with bitterness. Job says that God will not allow him to catch his breath without the great pain he is experiencing, and that Job's life is full of bitterness. And in verses 19 to 21, Job feels he has no chance against God. And he's lost the will to live. In Job 9.19, Job understands his weakness before God. He says, if I speak of strength, lo, he is strong. And if of judgment, who shall set me a time to plead? So Job is saying, you know, this continues to be that, that courtroom illustration. Job says that if he came on trial before God... God has a stronger case than he does. There are no witnesses who would be willing to come to appear against God. And if he came to trial before God, he could not win. Well, Job Job says, if he tried to justify his cause, he would lay himself open to condemnation before God. There in verse 20. If I justify justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. The word perfect there from the Hebrew word time, Brown Driver Briggs says, means complete, morally innocent, having integrity. But he says if I do that, my mouth will prove me perverse. That's from the Hebrew word akash, which means according to Strong's, to not or distort, figuratively to pervert. So Job is saying, if I try to justify myself, I'm going to condemn myself. And then Job says in verse 21, if my view is that I am innocent and God judges otherwise, I would not speak up, I would not mention it. Verse 21, though I were perfect, yet would I not know or would not know my soul. I would despise my life. Job is saying that if he claims to be innocent and God says he's guilty, then he must not know himself very well. Job would not insist on living longer if God found him guilty. And in verses 22 to 24 Job claims that good and bad happen to both the innocent and the guilty. So from Job's experience, he sees that in the set course of life, the righteous and the wicked have an equal lot. Verse 22. This is one thing, therefore I said it. He destroyeth the perfect and the wicked. Well, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, <coughs> Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, there Jesus said that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So Job is kind of going that direction there. And then in Job nine twenty-three. Job says that God allows the innocent and the guilty to suffer, Job 9.23. If the scourge slays suddenly, he will laugh at the trial of the innocent. Uh, Albert Barnes says this, and I quote, that is, he seems to disregard or to be pleased with their trials. He does not interpose to rescue them, he seems to look calmly on and suffers or allows them to be overwhelmed with others. This is a poetic expression and cannot mean that God derides the trials of the innocent or mocks their sufferings. It means that he seems to be inattentive to them. He suffers the righteous and the wicked to be swept away together as if they were as if he were regardless of character, unquote. So he's just saying God allows everyone to suffer. In verse 24, Job says the wicked seem to have the most control over the earth, Job 9, 24. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covereth the face of the judges thereof. If not, where and who is he? In other words, Joe's saying life is not fair. There are wicked judges that punish the innocent. And people may wonder, where is God? And who is God if all these bad things are happening? Oh, you ever heard anybody say, where was God when this happened to me or this happened to my family or whatever it may be? People state that. And Job sees his life as slipping away. Job 9:25 and 26. "Now my days are swifter than a post or a runner. They flee away, they see no good. They are passed away as the swift ships as the eagle that hasteth to the prey. Job sees his life as moving as fast as a runner delivering an urgent message from a king. Job compares the end of his life to ships that are made out of papyrus that are light and fast. The word translated swift here in verse 26, swift ships. That word "ebay," according to Brown Driver Briggs, means a reed or papyrus, so papyrus ships. The literal translation of the Bible does translate it this way. They have passed away like the reed ships as an eagle swoops on food. So Job considers the passing of his life as fast as those reed ships pass away and as fast as an eagle swoops down on its food. Uh, Robert Gordis in the book of Job commentary on page 109 states this. We have three magnificent similes whose full significance needs to be savored. Job compares his life to a runner, a skiff, and a vulture. Each is not only swifter than the preceding, but suggest an additional nuance. The runner represents speed. The papyrus skiff adds the idea of fragility The vulture, the theme of cruelty. Life is brief, precious, and cruel. Well, that's a good place for us to stop here in the uh, lesson on Job today. Uh, Lord willing, we will begin in Job 9.27 in our next lesson. But again, this is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for tuning in to opening the scriptures today, and we look forward to being with you next time.
0: When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study.